Thanks for having me. I was out um, out at the bay, is that what it's called, uh, a while back, where I got to kind of vent my story a little bit. Uh, some of you were there. Thanks for that. And one of the things that I talked about when I was there is uh, when I was in high school, I had a youth pastor who challenged us to try and read Philippians every day for a month. And I tried. <clears throat> I don't actually remember how many of the days of the month I read Philippians. But one thing I do remember is um, there was a there's a passage that kind of stood out to me, I guess I would say. And it was in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, where it says, uh, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And Paul's been talking about... Um, the kind of religious stuff that he's done. And he's basically saying all of these really cool religious things aren't really where it's at. In fact, I consider all of that stuff loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I count them as garbage or dung or... It's a translation issue. That I may... It is. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And then he says, uh, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And I remember that just really started to brew in me, uh, this thing of oh, I want to know God, and I want to know Christ, and the power of his resurrection. And then there's this thing about the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And I, I was, was kind of like, I think when I was in high school, I was like, yeah, I want, you know, because I'm all like on fire and zealous and don't have a clue what I'm getting myself into, you know? And so it's like, yeah, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings because it sounds so amazing and epic, you know? And then you actually begin to experience it down the road and you're like, that's enough. Thank you very much. And uh, so that's, that's basically the gist of what I want to get into today. And part of my story lately has been uh, coming to grips with the fact that part of following God is you take it on the chin for others. And that's just kind of the way things are wired in the kingdom. And um, <clears throat> I think what kind of started to really uh, alert me to this more, more so than the Philippians passage is uh, the law, right? So if you think of those really boring parts of the Old Testament that we don't read because they don't make sense and they seem to be not even remotely relevant, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I read those. So, uh, so, um, so there's there's a couple passages um, that I want to just point to for a second. So uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from Deuteronomy chapter 24, okay? Um, and uh, I'm going to work through a couple of laws uh, at the end of Deuteronomy 24. So the first one says, Don't deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as, as a pledge. 
Um, hold on, I gotta, I gotta work out the holding of this better. Here we go. Um, <clears throat> remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That's why I command you to do this. So uh, there's a couple of things there. So on the first part of the verse, you have don't deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. The second half, don't, don't take uh, a widow's cloak as a pledge. And at first they seem kind of unrelated. It's like, okay, don't deprive the foreigner or, the, or an orphan of justice. All right, got it. Uh, don't take a cloak of a widow as a pledge. What does that mean as a pledge? Okay, I don't know what that means. Um, and, th- and they don't really necessarily seem to go together very well uh, on the surface. But um, first off, in, uh, in the law, in the Old Testament, there's, there are different ways of just basically triggering, hey, I'm talking about the vulnerable. Or I'm talking about um, <clears throat> the disadvantaged. But it's, sorry, <clears throat> but it's not necessarily uh, disadvantaged in like a, a generic sense. It's, it's more of uh, vulnerability in the sense where you, for some reason, don't have the means to care for yourself, whether it's uh, economically or in this law with justice. But there's four main categories of the vulnerable that are talked about in the law. There's um, widows, and in that culture, which was a very agrarian, like farm-based, small clan-based culture, a widow could be very vulnerable because um, the, the primary means by which a, 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 an older woman was financially taken care of was from the family, from the clan, like working, and working the land in particular. And so a widow could be open to economic vulnerability. Uh, the a second category is the foreigner or the resident alien. It's someone who is not um, a, an Israelite by descent, and the reason that makes them vulnerable is because they don't automatically have land. The land was allotted to the different Israelite tribes. And so the idea is that you have someone who's living among you, but they're, they're landless. And so that, that's, that creates vulnerability for them. Uh, a third class is orphans. Um, I think it's kind of self-evident as to why that creates vulnerability. And a fourth class that gets talked about more in Leviticus than in Deuteronomy is clergy or the priests because their sustenance was from the offerings. They were also landless. The land allotments, the tribe of Levi did not get a land allotment. So that lack of land, uh, and land is the thing that allowed you to grow the crops to create your sustenance. So if you're landless in an ancient agrarian economy, you're vulnerable. And so what you've got is, hey, just because you have the opportunity to very easily overlook a resident alien or an orphan, you don't do it. Ensure that they can receive justice. And that second half of the verse, uh, you have a widow who... uh, when it says take a cloak as a pledge, there's a couple things you need to know. One, cloak 
um, is a big deal because that was the primary means of uh, keeping themselves warm at night. Like the, the, the culture was, uh, you know, when you go to bed at night, you wrap yourself in your cloak and, and you go to sleep. And when it talks about a pledge, uh, that's uh, a pledge against um, some sort of loan or like debt security. So it's basically, hey, don't take a cloak as the collateral for a loan. That's what it means when it says don't take a cloak as a pledge. And the point is you don't take the cloak because you're um, denying a, a basic need, right, of clo the clothing that you need to stay warm at night. So basically what the law is saying is, look, don't be an a-hole by taking, the, the, uh, taking away the means for a widow to provide basic needs for herself. Okay, and the the <clears throat> the thing that's interesting to me is that uh, the law, not just the law, but poetry, wisdom literature in the Bible, it'll often uh, put two things that seem unrelated side by side because it's forcing you to figure out why they're related. And part of what this law is doing by giving you this idea of cloak, which very easily triggers basic needs, right? Food, clothing, housing, basic human needs. It puts that in parallel with justice. And part of what it's saying is that justice, as far as God is concerned, justice is as basic a human need as food, clothing, or housing. And so when you deny the vulnerable justice, just because you can, or because it would inconvenience you to provide justice for them. Well, that's a surefire way to tick God off, because what you're doing is you're taking advantage of or you're not caring for the vulnerable. And the point that I'm trying to get at in all of this is that God has wired things to work where we are to take it on the chin for others. And that's part of what you see in this law. Uh, the next law, super interesting. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, right, the vulnerable, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Now, right there, you, you've got enough to get to the principle of, uh, of the law, right? It's, it's, hey, when you're harvesting... Uh, leave some for those who are landless or, or for whatever reason don't have the means to grow their own crops. I've got it right there in the first one. So the question becomes, why does it then say, when you beat the olives from your trees, don't go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And then you get the same refrain that we had in the last law, which is, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do this. All you need is that first one, and you can get at the idea of, hey, leave some of your crops for the landless so that they can be provided for. Why on earth does it repeat the same basic idea three times but in different iterations? First, when you're harvesting probably uh, your wheat or your barley harvest, that's when you have sheaves, um, and then your olives, and then your uh, vines, <clears throat> 
Why the repetition? It's like I got the idea in the first one. Why the repetition? Uh, What the repetition does is it triggers. You need to be thinking about this. You see, if if I show up and I say, hey, when you're harvesting your barley, leave some behind, you're like, all right. I don't really have to think about it. When I, all right, when I go out and harvest my barley, I'll leave some behind for the landless. Eh, no big deal. But when I say, oh, oh, by the way, also when you're uh, harvesting your olives, leave some. And you start to go, oh, okay, barley and olives. I wonder if there are other... Oh, hey, by the way, when you're harvesting your vines, do the same thing. What the repetition is doing is it is telling you that it's not enough to just get the law and and sort of in a rote way go and do it with your harvest. What What the repetition is doing is it's saying it is your job to be ever cognizant of ways in which the vulnerable, and in this case in particular, those who can't feed themselves are going to get fed. The repetition triggers, it's on you, not them. It's on you to be thinking about how they're going to be cared for. In other words, it's just part of how it's wired that you take it on the chin for others. And this just goes on and on and on. And in these two laws, there's this refrain that says, remember, guys, you were slaves. This is why I'm commanding you about this. Why is he reminding him of that? Well, it's pretty simple. Hey, guys, you know what it's like to be the vulnerable. You know what it's like to be the disadvantaged. You know what it's like to be in a position where you don't have the right to care for yourself. So when you get into a scenario where you are no longer the vulnerable, again, don't turn into a jerk. This experience should breed in you an understanding that it is my job to be ever cognizant of how the vulnerable are going to receive the basic needs of life, which includes justice. And so it's no surprise that when a teacher of the law is talking to Jesus, that they're able to summarize the law uh, by saying, yeah, love God and love others. It's kind of what it boils down to. But it's so easy to say love others and not really think through the cost of loving others. You know, I can be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to love others. And basically all I mean by that is when I'm walking out today and you say hi to me, I'm not going to be a jerk and flip you off and keep walking. I'm going to be like, oh, hello, how are you? I hope you have a nice day. Where are you going for lunch today? Yay, I'm wonderful. I love others. The law goes way beyond that. Uh, So I want to give you another um, example. And this is from Isaiah chapter 53, which is sometimes referred to as the uh, uh, suffering servant song. Um, And it'll, it'll be familiar to some of you. Let me read Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom... Has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, 
Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers, as silent, so he did not open his mouth. By, uh, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is uh, from Isaiah chapter 53, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus. And yet, uh, what's normal, if you've heard this passage, is to just kind of assume, oh, that was written about Jesus. And Jesus certainly fulfilled it. But it was originally written with someone else in mind. And scholars uh, debate who the original referent is. Some people think it was an individual, uh, some person. Some people think it was a particular king. Some people think it's actually uh, an analogy for the nation as a whole. doesn't really matter. The point that I'm trying to get at is that If you just read this passage and think, oh, yeah, they're predicting Jesus and what Jesus is going to do, yay, Uh, you're missing a huge part of the point. And a huge part of the point is that God, for some reason, has wired the kingdom to work such that we are to take it on the chin for others. And... And even something as dramatic as what I, I read in Isaiah chapter 53, there's a sense in which that call to suffer on behalf of others, a call that goes so great that it says, by his wounds we are healed. That is how it works in the kingdom of God. Is that by our wounds, others are healed. And it's supposed to be that way, uh, and, and, and that's what makes it so amazing about Jesus coming and fulfilling it, because Jesus shows, it, shows us what it really 
looks like. But there's this interesting thing. I go back to that passage in Philippians that I started with. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Well, at the end of the day, what are his sufferings? His sufferings are that he takes it on the chin for the benefit of others. And that that can take on many different looks. But the basic concept is all through Scripture. That part of being a part of God's redemptive work in the world means owning a willingness to take it on the chin for the benefit of others, for the community. Uh, Peter said it this way. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. And First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, I want to read. But it's interesting, I'll tell you up front, he's going to address slaves. In other words, he's addressing people who are in a despicable, vulnerable situation. And listen to what he says. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering, because you are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter's entire point in this passage is Jesus gave the example. You suffer on behalf of others, and by your wounds, they are healed. And we are to mimic that. Holy crap, that sucks. I mean, it just does. And yet it's how he's wired the redemptive work in his kingdom. It's interesting to me, uh, you know, the whole, like, what would Jesus do kind of stuff. And I, my background, uh, the, the, the kind of church culture that I grew up in through elementary and middle school and high school, the idea of what would Jesus do was often tied to morality. You know, it was like, oh, well, he's not going to use that word. And, uh, you know, it was, I, I, I'm going to wear my, like, purity ring to high school, you know, or whatever. It, it, was, it, was, it was very moralistically driven when we would think about what would Jesus do. There wasn't really much talk about, oh, what would Jesus do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he would suffer for the benefit of others. And we didn't sit around in youth group saying, hey, what would Jesus do? Oh, yeah, he would suffer for others. All right, how can we suffer that others might be healed? You know, try that on in a small group discussion. (laughs) Um, 
And uh, so part of what came out uh, at the Bay when I was uh, sort of venting where I was at in my story is a severe amount of frustration uh, for times when I've had to take it on the chin for others. And I think what God's been doing in me uh, is, is very kindly and very graciously asking, do you, do you still want to be a part of this? Not, not in like some sort of, oh no, he's going to kick me out or disown me or whatever, but like very kindly and gently revealing to me that stuff that hurt so bad that you've been crying out to me about. Look around you. Oh. And it, it's, uh, it's difficult, you know, but I brought it on myself because I kept praying I want to know Christ. <laughs> And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And um, I'll just say that when, when Kurt invited me to preach, he threw out a couple dates uh, this week and next. And I pulled up the calendar, and I looked at the calendar, and I, and I said, Hey, Kurt, that first one is Mother's Day. Like, are you expecting a rousing Mother's Day sermon? Because I don't know how to do that. <laughs> you know? And he's, he's like, No, man, don't worry about it. And then we were texting this morning, and irony of ironies, God's been working the perfect Mother's Day sermon in me because name anyone who takes it harder on the chin for the benefit of others than a mom. And I think this is why Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, he, he says this really w- weird, enigmatic line. He says, women are saved through childbearing. That's 1 Timothy 2.15. And, and you read that passage, and you're like, what the, what? Say it like, I get into heaven by having a kid? Like, what is that? No, 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 no. What he's saying is... You grow into Christ-likeness. You work out what it looks like to be saved by being a mom. And it's stunning to me the, uh, the amount of travel and speaking in different churches that I do because of my role at the seminary. Something that I have seen consistently borne out over and over and over again, is that any church that has been around for more than 20 years, when you really get under the hood and you say, what makes this thing go? There's always a few little old ladies. (laughs) I kid you not. There's always a few elderly women that just have this perfume of the presence of Christ. They have learned intimately what it is to suffer on behalf of others. And, and, it, and, it, and it just breathes out in the life of the congregation, and most people in the congregation don't have the slightest clue that that's the bedrock upon which their ministries are built. So, um, I think at this point I should just pray and let Kurt take over. Um, Lord, I thank you for my mom who set the tone for me of what it looks like 
to serve you her selfless care and concern, her protection, her endless unceasing prayers on my behalf. And uh, in, in front of all of these people, Lord, I want to thank you for uh, the privilege you've given me of suffering on behalf of others in the ways that you've allowed. Um, and uh, you know that I want to continue to pray that you would allow me to know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings. But Lord, I also ask that you be gentle because sharing in your sufferings really, really sucks sometimes. So... Fill us with your grace. Amen.